Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. The Voyage of the Beagle. Chapter 4, Part 2. Rio Negro to Bahia Blanca. We stayed two days at the Colorado. I had little to do, for the surrounding country was a swamp, which in summer, December, when the snow melts in the cordillera, is overflowed by the river. My chief amusement was watching the Indian families, as they came to buy little articles at the rancho where we stayed. It was supposed that General Rosas had about six hundred Indian allies. The men were a tall, fine race, yet it was afterwards easy to see in the Fuegian savage the same countenance rendered hideous by cold, want of food, and less civilization. Some authors, in defining the primary races of mankind, have separated these Indians into two classes, but this is certainly incorrect. Among the young women, or chinas, some deserve to be called even beautiful. Their hair was coarse, but bright and black, and they wore it in two plates hanging down to the waist. They had a high color, and eyes that glistened with brilliancy. Their legs, feet, and arms were small and elegantly formed. Their ankles, and sometimes their wrists, were ornamented by broad bracelets of blue beads. Nothing could be more interesting than some of the family groups. A mother with one or two daughters would often come to our rancho, mounted on the same horse. They ride like men, but with their knees tucked up much higher. This habit, perhaps, arises from their being accustomed, when traveling, to ride the loaded horses. The duty of the women is to load and unload the horses, to make the tents for the night, in short to be, like the wives of all savages, useful slaves. The men fight, hunt, take care of the horses, and make the riding gear. One of their chief indoor occupations is to knock two stones together till they become round, in order to make the bolas. With this important weapon the Indian catches his game, and also his horse, which roams free over the plain. In fighting, his first attempt is to throw down the horse of his adversary with the bolas, and, when entangled by the fall, to kill him with the chuzo. If the balls only catch the neck or body of an animal, they are often carried away and lost. As the making the stones round is the labor of two days, the manufacture of the balls is a very common employment. Several of the men and women had their faces painted red, but I never saw the horizontal bands which are so common among the Fuegians. Their chief pride consists in having everything made of silver. I have seen a cacique with his spears, stirrups, handle of his knife, and bridle made of this metal. The headstall and reins, being of wire, were not thicker than whipcord, and to see a fiery steed wheeling about the command of so light a chain gave to the horsemanship a remarkable character of elegance. General Rosas intimated a wish to see me, a circumstance which I was afterwards very glad of. He is a man of an extraordinary character, and has the most predominant influence in the country, which he seems he will use to its prosperity and advancement. Footnote. This prophecy has turned out entirely and miserably wrong. 1845. In footnote. He is said to be the owner of seventy-four square leagues of land, and have about three hundred thousand head of cattle. 
his estates are admirably managed, and are far more productive of corn than those of others. He first gained his celebrity by his laws for his own estancias, and by disciplining several hundred men, so as to resist with success the attacks of the Indians. There are many stories current about the rigid manner in which his laws were enforced. One of these was, that no man, on penalty of being put into the stocks, should carry his knife on a Sunday, this being the principal day for gambling and drinking many quarrels arose, which from the general manner of fighting with the knife often proved fatal. One Sunday the governor came in great form to pay the estancia a visit, and General Rosas, in his hurry, walked out to receive him with his knife, as usual, stuck in his belt. The steward touched his arm and reminded him of the law, upon which, turning to the governor, he said he was extremely sorry but that he must go into the stocks, and that, till let out, he possessed no power even in his own house. After a little time the steward was persuaded to open the stocks, and to let him out, but no sooner was this done than he turned to the steward and said, You now have broken the law, so you must take my place in the stocks. Such actions as these delighted the gauchos, who all possess high notions of their own equality and dignity. General Rosas is also a perfect horseman, an accomplishment of no small consequence in a country where an assembled army elected its general by the following trial. A troop of unbroken horses, being driven into a corral, were led out through a gateway, above which was a crossbar. It was agreed, whoever should drop from the bar on one of these wild animals, as it rushed out, and should be able, without saddle or bridle, not only to ride it, but also to bring it back to the door of the corral, should be their general. The person who succeeded was accordingly elected, and doubtless made a fit general for such an army. This extraordinary feat has also been performed by Rosas. By these means, and by conforming to the dress and habits of the gauchos, he has obtained an unbounded popularity in the country, and in consequence a despotic power. I was assured by an English merchant that a man who had murdered another, when arrested and questioned concerning his motive, answered, He spoke disrespectfully of General Rosas, so I killed him. At the end of a week the murderer was at liberty. This doubtless was the act of the general's party, and not of the general himself. In conversation he is enthusiastic, sensible, and very grave. His gravity is carried to a high pitch. I heard one of his mad buffoons, for he keeps two like the barons of old, relate the following anecdote. I wanted very much to hear a certain piece of music, so I went to the general two or three times to ask him. He said to me, Go about your business, for I am engaged. I went a second time, he said, If you come again, I will punish you. A third time I asked, and he laughed. I rushed out of the tent, but it was too late. He ordered two soldiers to catch and stake me. I begged by all the saints in heaven he would let me off, but it would not do. When the general laughs, he spares neither madman nor sound. The poor flighty gentleman looked quite dolorous at the very recollection of the staking. This is a very severe punishment. Four posts are driven into the ground, and the man is extended by his arms and legs horizontally, and there left to stretch for several hours. The idea is evidently taken from the usual method of drying hides. My interview passed away without a smile, and I obtained a passport and order for the government post-horses and this he gave me in the most obliging and ready manner. 
In the morning we started for Bahia Blanca, which we reached in two days. Leaving the regular encampment, we passed by the toldos of the Indians. These are round like ovens and covered with hides. By the mouth of each, a tapering chuzo was stuck in the ground. The toldos were divided into separate groups, which belonged to the different caciques tribes, and the groups were again divided into smaller ones, according to the relationship of the owners. For several miles we traveled along the valley of the Colorado. The alluvial plains on the side appeared fertile, and it is supposed that they are well adapted to the growth of corn. Turning northward from the river, we soon entered on a country differing from the plains south of the river. The land still continued dry and sterile, but it supported many different kinds of plants, and the grass, though brown and withered, was more abundant, as the thorny bushes were less so. These latter, in a short space, entirely disappeared, and the plains were left without a thicket to cover their nakedness. This change in the vegetation marks the commencement of the grand calcario argillaceous deposit, which forms the wide extent of the Pampas, and covers the granitic rocks of Banda Oriental. From the Strait of Magellan to the Colorado, a distance of about 800 miles, the face of the country is everywhere composed of shingle. The pebbles are chiefly of porphyry, and probably owe their origin to the rocks of the Cordillera. North of the Colorado this bed thins out, and the pebbles become exceedingly small, and here the characteristic vegetation of Patagonia ceases. Having ridden about twenty-five miles, we came to a broad belt of sand dunes, which stretches as far as the eye can reach to the east and west. The sand hillocks resting on the clay allow small pools of water to collect, and thus afford in this dry country an invaluable supply of fresh water. The great advantage arising from depressions and elevations of the soil is not often brought home to the mind. The two miserable springs in the long passage between the Rio Negro and the Colorado were caused by trifling inequalities in the plain. Without them not a drop of water would have been found. The belt of sand dunes is about eight miles wide. At some former period it probably formed the margin of a grand estuary, where the Colorado now flows. In this district, where absolute proofs of the recent elevation of the land occur, such speculations can hardly be neglected by anyone, although merely considering the physical geography of the country. Having crossed the sandy tract, we arrived in the evening at one of the post-houses, and as the fresh horses were grazing at a distance, we determined to pass the night there. The house was situated at the base of a ridge between one and two hundred feet high, a most remarkable feature in this country. This posta was commanded by a negro lieutenant born in Africa. To his credit, be it said, there was not a ranche between the Colorado and Buenos Aires in nearly such neat order as his. He had a little room for strangers, and a small corral for the horses, all made of sticks and reeds. He also had dug a ditch round his house as a defense in case of being attacked. This would, however, have been of little avail if the Indians had come but his chief comfort seemed to rest in the thought of selling his life dearly. A short time before, a body of Indians had traveled past in the night. If they had been aware of the posta, our black friend and his four soldiers would assuredly have been slaughtered. I did not anywhere meet a more civil and obliging man than this negro. It was therefore the more painful to see that he would not sit down and eat with us. In the morning we sent for the horses very early, and started for another exhilarating gallop. 
we pass the Cabeza del Buey, an old name given to the head of a large marsh, which extends from Bahia Blanca. Here we changed horses, and passed through some leagues of swamps and saline marshes. Changing horses for the last time, we again began wading through the mud. My animal fell, and I was well soused in black mire, a very disagreeable accident when one does not possess a change of clothes. Some miles from the fort we met a man, who told us that a great gun had been fired, which is a signal that Indians are near. We immediately left the road, and followed the edge of a marsh, which, when chased, offers the best mode of escape. We were glad to arrive within the walls, when we found that all the alarm was about nothing, for the Indians turned out to be friendly ones, who wished to join General Rosas. Bahia Blanca scarcely deserves the name of a village. A few houses and the barracks for the troops are enclosed by a deep ditch and fortified wall. The settlement is only of recent standing, since 1828, and its growth has been one of trouble. The government of Buenos Aires unjustly occupied it by force, instead of following the wise example of the Spanish viceroys, who purchased the land near the older settlement of the Rio Negro from the Indians. Hence the need of the fortifications. Hence the few houses and little cultivated land, without the limits of the walls. Even the cattle are not safe from the attacks of the Indians beyond the boundaries of the plain on which the fortress stands. The part of the harbor where the beagle intended to anchor being distant twenty-five miles, I obtained from the commandant a guide and horses, to take me to see whether she had arrived. Leaving the plain of green turf, which extended along the course of a little brook, we soon entered on a wide level waste, consisting either of sand, saline marshes, or bare mud. Some parts were clothed by low thickets, and others with those succulent plants which luxuriate only where salt abounds. Bad as the country was, Ostriches, deers, agoutis, and armadillos were abundant. My guide told me that two months before he had a most narrow escape of his life. He was out hunting with two other men, at no great distance from this part of the country, when they were suddenly met by a party of Indians, who, giving chase, soon overtook and killed his two friends. His own horse's legs were also caught by the bolas, but he jumped off, and with his knife cut them free. While doing this, he was obliged to dodge round his horse, and receive two severe wounds from their chuzos. Springing on the saddle, he managed, by a most wonderful exertion, just to keep ahead of the long spears of his pursuers, who followed him to within sight of the fort. From that time there was an order that no one should stray far from the settlement. I did not know of this when I started, and was surprised to observe how earnestly my guide watched a deer, which appeared to have been frightened from a distant quarter. We found the beagle had not arrived, and consequently set out on our return. But the horses soon tiring, we were obliged to bivouac on the plain. In the morning we had caught an armadillo, which, although a most excellent dish when roasted in its shell, did not make a very substantial breakfast and dinner for two hungry men. The ground at the place where we stopped for the night was encrusted with a layer of sulfate of soda, and hence, of course, was without water. Yet many of the smaller rodents managed to exist even here, and the tuku-tuku was making its odd little grunt beneath my head during half the night. Our horses were very poor ones, and in the morning they were soon exhausted from not having had anything to drink, so that we were obliged to walk. About noon the dogs killed a kid, which we roasted. I ate some of it, but it made me intolerably thirsty. 
This was the more distressing, as the road, from some recent rain, was full of little puddles of clear water, yet not a drop was drinkable. I had scarcely been twenty hours without water, and only part of the time under a hot sun, yet the thirst rendered me very weak. How people survive two or three days under such circumstances, I cannot imagine. At the same time, I must confess that my guide did not suffer at all, and was astonished that one day's deprivation should be so troublesome to me. I have several times alluded to the surface of the ground being encrusted with salt. This phenomenon is quite different from that of the Salinas, and more extraordinary. In many parts of South America, wherever the climate is moderately dry, these encrustations occur, but I have nowhere seen them so abundant as near Bahia Blanca. The salt here, and in other parts of Patagonia, consists chiefly of sulfate of soda with some common salt. As long as the ground remains moist in the salitrales, as the Spaniards improperly call them, mistaking this substance for saltpetre, nothing is to be seen but an extensive plain composed of a black, muddy soil, supporting scattered tufts of succulent plants. On returning through one of these tracks, after a week's hot weather, one is surprised to see square miles of the plain white, as if from a slight fall of snow, here and there heaped out by the wind into little drifts. This latter appearance is chiefly caused by the salt being drawn up, during the slow evaporation of the moisture, round blades of dead grass, stumps of wood, and pieces of broken earth, instead of being crystallized at the bottoms of the puddles of water. The salitrales occur either on level tracks, elevated only a few feet above the level of the sea, or on alluvial land bordering rivers. M. Parshop found that the saline incrustation on the plain, at the distance of some miles from the sea, consisted chiefly of sulfate of soda, with only seven per cent of common salt. Whilst nearer to the coast, the common salt increased to thirty-seven parts in a hundred. This circumstance would tempt one to believe that the sulphate of soda is generated in the soil, from the muriate left on the surface during the slow and recent elevation of this dry country. The whole phenomenon is well worthy the attention of naturalists. Have the succulent, salt-loving plants, which are well known to contain much soda, the power of decomposing the muriate? Does a black-fetid mud, abounding with organic matter, yield the sulphur and ultimately the sulphuric acid? Two days afterwards I again rode to the harbor. When not far from our destination, my companion, the same man as before, spied three people hunting on horseback. He immediately dismounted, and, watching them intently, said, They don't ride like Christians, and nobody can leave the fort. The three hunters joined company, and likewise dismounted from their horses. At last one mounted again and rode over the hill out of sight. My companion said, we must now get on our horses. Load your pistol. And he looked to his own sword. I asked, Are they Indians? Quien sabe? Who knows? If they are more than three, it does not signify. It then struck me that the one man had gone over the hill to fetch the rest of his tribe. I suggested this, but all the answer I could extort was, Quien sabe? His head and eye, never for a minute, ceased scanning slowly the distant horizon. I thought his uncommon coolness too good a joke, and asked him why he did not return home. I was startled when he answered, We are returning, but in a line so as to pass near a swamp, into which we can gallop the horses as far as they can go, and then trust to our own legs, 
so that there is no danger. I did not feel quite so confident of this, and wanted to increase our pace. He said, no, not until they do. When any little inequality concealed us, we galloped, but when inside, continued walking. At last we reached a valley, and, turning to the left, galloped quickly to the foot of a hill. He gave me his horse to hold, made the dogs lie down, and then crawled on his hands and knees to reconnoiter. He remained in this position for some time, and at last, bursting out in laughter, exclaimed, Mujeres, women. He knew them to be the wife and sister-in-law of the major's son, hunting for ostrich's eggs. I have described this man's conduct, because he acted under the full impression that they were Indians. As soon, however, as the absurd mistake was found out, he gave me a hundred reasons why they could not have been Indians, but all these were forgotten at the time. We then rode on in peace and quietness to a low point called Punta Alta, whence we could see nearly the whole of the great harbor of Bahia Blanca. The wide expanse of water is choked up by numerous great mud-banks, which the inhabitants call congrejales, or crab-berries, from the number of small crabs. The mud is so soft that it is impossible to walk over them, even for the shortest distance. Many of the banks have their surfaces covered with long rushes, the tops of which alone are visible at high water. On one occasion, when in a boat, we were so entangled by these shallows that we could hardly find our way. Nothing was visible but the flat beds of mud, the day was not very clear, and there was much refraction, or, as the sailors expressed it, things loomed high. The only object within our view which was not level was the horizon. Rushes looked like bushes unsupported in the air, and water like mud-banks, and mud-banks like water. We passed the night in Punta Alta, and I employed myself in searching for fossil bones, this point being a perfect catacomb for monsters of extinct races. The evening was perfectly calm and clear. The extreme monotony of the view gave it an interest even in the midst of mud-banks and gulls, sand hillocks and solitary vultures. In riding back in the morning, we came across a very fresh track of a puma, but did not succeed in finding it. We saw also a couple of zorios, or skunks, odious animals which are far from uncommon. In general appearance, the zorio resembles a polecat, but it is rather larger, and much thicker in proportion. Conscious of its power, it roams by day about the open plain, and fears neither dog nor man. If a dog is urged to attack, its courage is instantly checked by a few drops of the fetid oil, which brings on violent sickness and running at the nose. Whatever is once polluted by it is forever useless. Azara says the smell can be perceived at a league distance. More than once, when entering the harbor of Monte Bideo, the wind being offshore, we have perceived the odor on board the beagle. Certain it is that every animal most willingly makes room for the Zorio. End of chapter 4, part 2